0: Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. On this
1: episode, what should I make for dinner? Well, Canada Beef would say beef, of course, but what cut kind of beef? What should I choose? How do I prepare it? That's why Canada Beef is working towards getting QR codes on every package of beef. One quick scan with your smartphone, and all of those questions could be answered. Canada Beef President Michael Young says when every cut of beef has its own QR code, the home cook will have all of that information to make a decision on the type of beef to buy, how to cook it, even be provided with recipes and videos and a grocery list at their fingertips. Eventually, the QR code will be part of the retail meat case, print, and digital flyers. While beef will be the first to do this, Young believes other commodities like chicken and pork will soon follow. Better Brome, Better Beef. The Global Institute for Food Security at the University of Saskatchewan will receive $332,000 from the Agriculture Development Fund in Saskatchewan to find ways to make genetic improvements to brome grass considered an essential forage crop for cattle. GIF's Director of Genomics and Bioinformatics, Andrew Sharp, will explain how the research being done will provide a catalogue of genetic variations for brome grass. He says it will make a direct impact on the ability of breeders to select the most nutritious varieties of brome grass that produce the largest yield. After the break, Michael Young.
0: Digging into the topics that matter to you, The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane.
1: I'm speaking with Michael Young with Canada beef and Michael, there's been a lot of discussion. And the first that uh, I heard about it was at the Saskatchewan beef industry symposium was how Canada beef is planning on taking advantage of QR codes. Maybe just first of all, for some of us that are a little you know, gray up top that aren't aware what a QR code is, just explain that for us first.
0: Sure. Well, um, First of all, uh, QR code—it's it's short for quick response code—and and I think a lot of people are used to seeing them, but they may not really see them, and that you haven't noticed them in the past. But you know, they're usually in the shape of a square, and they've got all kind of squiggly lines inside, and and the data is is um, is captured there, and then a, a reader would then direct you to wherever it is, whatever coding is built into that into that system. Uh, so. You know, we've been challenged with, with COVID as as everyone has, uh, and we had to pivot a lot of our programs and, and investments into you know how to make the best out of this situation, um, knowing that you know there's some some significant challenges, not just you know for the meat sector, but really for all sectors, really. Uh, and um, you know, we we learn quickly learned that the you know the, there's a huge opportunity with QR codes if we can figure out a way to get them more closely associated with our product. So we did quite a bit of soul searching on what did that look like, and, um, and what it came down to was we realized that you know the technology exists, we just don't have the infrastructure to support it. So we came up with the idea that we're going to create uh, a unique QR code for every beef cut that we can possibly imagine and then even many of the ones we plan on introducing to the marketplace down the road. So to put that in perspective, Alice, um, usually a a retail grocery store will have anywhere from, I'm gonna talk about the beef category only, anywhere from 15 to 20 skews, a skew meaning a a, a kind of beef cut that's available. Uh, We've identified almost 100 Um, with an extra 30 that we want to add as things roll. So, you know, our long-term goal is to get consumers enjoying beef more often and in more different ways, you know, and uh, so creating an individual QR code that could be uh, attached to the product somehow would then allow us to provide the user with, uh, with the information they need to make a decision. It could be on, the decision could be about The price point, uh, the nutritional value, how to cook it, how to prepare it, how to store it, Um, branding, grading, you know, any sustainability, you know, any of the information that consumers we know are out there looking for, we can provide a direct link on the product. And what we came up with is we would create a system that would encourage uh, retail partners to add that QR code to their actual pricing system. So on the actual price tag, uh, beside all the information that's legally required, and in in an end, in addition to the price, there'd be a little code. We then promote that code, but the customer could then scan the code, and then they would be directed to um, um, a website, and would allow them to then make some selections. Could be basic. Um, I think we looked at four four basic areas. You know basic preparation methods for a quick quick read, a full recipe with a shopping list because you know you're going to view this in the store, um, but then also videos that go with it. And I'm talking, you know the quick we call them hands and pans type videos, but they're very popular. There's not a lot of talking. They're usually done in less than a minute and it's really camera over, really quick. And we've been producing a lot of those resources um, on another initiative, so we're we're well resourced there. And then nutritional information and everything else we want. But but the point is the the user uh, can select the information they need and they can do it, you know, at at the point of purchase, which is, you know, in front of the meat case. They could do it while they're sitting at home looking at the digital ads. You know, they may may see an item that's on sale that they've never bought before, a beef item, and they're wondering, how would I prepare it? How would I use it, Um, you know? All they would need to do is scan that QR code on that printed flyer or digital flyer, even before they left the house, and they would have access to that information right on their phone. So that's really kind of the overview of what we call the QR code gateway. Uh, we've got a team working on it now, and we're we're on track to start rolling out the offer uh, to retail clients um, by the end of our fiscal year, which is which is the end of March. So. Once we roll into next year, we're going to be uh, loading these programs up. Uh, it'll be a major part of our consumer marketing program how has in the next fiscal year.
1: How has the retail grocery industry, um, obviously this is something that you've had these discussions with them, how have they responded to this?
0: Well, that's a interesting question because um, we haven't really. Now, uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is we want to make sure we've got it figured out first. So we're in the process now of building the infrastructure. The way we want to sell this is to is to present to a retail partner a full working demonstration of what it will look like, rather than talk about a concept and then go back to work and, and then bring it to them. So um, what the way we look at this is that this is um, this is the direction we know we're going to go in we're pretty sure the rest of the world is going to catch up. <laughs> I mean, we're being taught that way. I mean, you go into a restaurant now, and if they happen to be open, um, nine times out of ten, you're going to have to look at a uh, an actual QR code to read the, the menu. So we know QR codes are being used, and we know that retail partners know that QR codes are being used. And we also know that retail partners um, struggle with connecting with millennials, um as well, it's it's not, you know, it's it's not something that is particular to our sector. Uh, all traditional business looks at ways of attracting their attention, keeping their attention, and, and giving them the information they need to make, you know, make a decision. Uh, you know, and for us, as I said, we want them to have all the information they need uh, to choose our product uh, more often, and and to expand the variety of, of of our products that can be offered. So, so so answer to your question is. They don't really know about it yet. Um, we're going to be making a series of presentations to them um, in March, and then we'll uh, we'll work with the uh, the clients that want to move ahead. Some of them have the technology to add QR codes to their pricing systems. Some of them don't. So uh, we've also uh, developed a series of sort of levels of commitment to this strategy. So let's say you're a retail partner, you're a regional retailer, but you don't really have the ability to add a QR code to their pricing system. Well, then we have a series of other support programs that would get that QR code there in different ways. Um, And that could be a a separate label. It could be a shelf talker that simply has one QR code for the entire uh, assortment. So in other words, if it's a a T-bone steak, there'd be one QR code at the point of purchase for T-bone steaks. So that the customer could then access it that way. So there's a variety of ways we can we can make this technology um, affordable. or not affordable because we're gonna we plan on investing heavily into it. So we're gonna remove all the speed bumps in terms of uh, you know what will this take for me to incorporate that? Well, from a cost point of view, nothing. All you need to do is hand us uh, your list, your SKU list. We'll then um, uh, give you the QR codes. And if there's some programming costs or, or some speed bumps that are associated with the technology, we're going to cover that. You know, we look at this as consumer marketing direct to their customers, and uh, the, the, the beef industry will fund it uh, 100% to get, um, to get this technology in front of the right customers.
1: At the beef industry conference, there there seemed to be a lot of uh, positive feedback from uh, producers and uh, livestock related businesses. is Is that the feeling that you've been getting as well that uh, they're they're quite excited about this whole concept?
0: Yeah, you know it's funny. The first time we've talked about it publicly was at that conference, Alan. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, we haven't got I mean, anybody we've talked to about it. Has said, wow, that's a really good idea. You know, there aren't, um, there aren't a lot of really original ideas in, in parts of this sector, and it truly is one. It reminds me of um, back in the day, and I mean, quite a ways back, like the turn of the century, really, um, we were way ahead when we came out with the new beef naming system, where we added the cooking method to the cut, to the categories. Uh, and at that time, it was quite a revolution in uh, of originality. And it really did give us a really good boost. And then since then, we've had, you know, as technology has changed and as this, the different segments that we serve to have, have changed, we've lost that connection. And so we've been searching for, for, for better ways to, to communicate. So, you know, there aren't too many, uh, I guess, silver linings associated with COVID, but, but this is definitely one that is, you know, presented an opportunity gap for our sector, and I have to say, you know, the the cattlemen funding partners—they see, they share the vision, they see the opportunity, and they—they've, um, you know, they are supporting our efforts to bring this technology forward and to, you know, to dominate space. Now, will other commodities follow? I'm pretty sure they will, and I and I think they should, and I think it actually would be good for all commodities because. You know, from a bigger sense, um, we do want to see uh, the, the animal protein sectors remain healthy and strong. So by allowing this technology to be used by you know anybody who wants to, you know, you're going to provide people who are thinking about eating animal proteins and they, they need more information. And uh, it, it is our job to, to provide them with the information they need in the form in which they want to consume it. So you're- we're committed to it.
1: You talked uh, specifically about retail and grocery industry. How can QR codes work their way into uh, those uh, home meal kits that that are delivered to our homes? Is there a, a role for them there?
0: Absolutely, it can be. You know, it could be a way of um, of communicating uh, how to prepare the product or all of the other information areas that a consumer might be looking for. So. We will extend once we get the the first one. For us, you know, the majority of the volume is the retail sector. So, first, we're going to roll that out from the lessons learned there. uh, I don't want to task the team with uh, attacking three or four huge categories at once because, uh, especially, you know, considering the situation we're in, I don't want them to take their eye off the ball. So, we're going to build on success. Our first level will be the launch in the retail sector and then we're going to come out with a, a strategy then to extend it to uh, takeout restaurants, homeo replacements, replacement, some of these um, you know less traditional but growing growing trends that are definitely here to stay uh, but we're also going to use the technology for for communicating not just to consumers but but business to business so a lot of our merchandising ideas um, are, are now going to be are now going to include a QR code as well. So as we move forward, uh, we'll include we'll continue to widen the use of, of, of this you know gateway, essentially a gateway to uh, to connect with with uh, our target market, whether they be a business to business approach or a business to consumer approach. And after that, Alice, we've got our eyes on the export sector. So once we've um, you know dominated the. Uh, Domestic side of it, we're going to be rolling the same strategy out in the export markets that we're we're developing in, and it'll be exactly the same approach.
1: Michael, that's great. Um, that's all the questions I had for you. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't cover?
0: Uh, no, I think I, I I give uh, compliments to you for noticing uh, that it's a good idea. I think uh, again, I you know you, we're all we're all hanging on by a thread here. And uh I, I you know, it's nice to see that there you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and there's some opportunities and some lessons that COVID's taught us. And uh it's uh, it's it's positive that I know the people I work for uh see the vision, um, they they like the direction we're going and they see the opportunity and that's uh that really speaks to an industry that's working together uh for all the right reasons I think.
1: Michael, it's a very interesting topic, and we look forward to hearing more about this in the coming months. A lot of work for your team.
0: Yeah, well, you're going to hear about it all right.
1: Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Alice. Michael Young is the president of Canada Beef. He was speaking to us from his home office on Vancouver Island. After the break, Dr. Andrew Sharp with the Global Institute for Food Security will talk about new research on bromegrass and important forage in livestock production.
0: Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane.
1: Andrew Sharp is the Director of Genomics and Bioinformatics at the Global Institute for Food Security. Andrew, you've been approved for funding through Saskatchewan's Agriculture Development Fund. Uh, Let's talk about the work that's being done to make genetic improvements to bromegrass. grass.
2: Brome grass is a very important um, crop uh, Forage crop for cattle, a key one for cattle, um, not just in Saskatchewan but uh, in um, in Western Canada. Um, so it's um, it's a, a, a primary forage crop, and there's been a, a breeding program based at the uh, University of Saskatchewan, also in collaboration with researchers at Agriculture Canada over the years. But it's now fully based at the Crop Development Centre at the University. Um, uh, to develop new varieties of of the, the crop, uh, so varieties that have uh, better performance, uh, better yields, and, and better resiliency to stresses um, and key stresses of both, um, in terms of pathogens and, and pests, uh, but also environmental stresses as well. So, be that drought or, or temperature, uh, high temperature. Of, um, and things that can impact uh, ultimately the yield of, of the biomass that you get. Now, that's a key thing, the biomass, because that's what the cattle are eating. So if that can be maximized, then you're maximizing uh, the, the volume, the amount of biomass you, uh, farmers are getting off uh, their land per the acre, so it, um, um, it, it enables the essentially the, the crop to go further, I guess, in terms of a uh, a uh, viable uh, food uh, forage uh, for the uh, for the the cattle that they're supporting, and uh, what we're planning on doing in the projects and what we've got funding for is to uh, enable, better enable the, the breeding efforts that are ongoing at the at the breeding program in the crop development center, and I can elaborate a little bit more on, on the on what we're planning on doing, if that's of interest.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, so um, basically at the current time, um, we're at a juncture where the technology to um, identify genetic and and genomic um, uh, variation in almost any crop is, is realizable at a reasonable cost. Uh, because the technology has reached the point now where we can get a lot of sequence data uh, quite efficiently and quite cheaply. Um, So I guess well over 20 years ago now, the human genome was was sequenced, and then shortly after that, the first plant genome. But it's only in in very recent years that we've been able to sequence things like the wheat genome. Uh, In fact, there was a a publication last summer on that on the, uh, the sequence of 10 wheat genomes. Well, that was only achievable because of these changes and improvements to the sequencing technologies. So, what we're planning on doing is applying these new technologies to, to ground grass. Um, and um, uh, uh, we want to actually uh, identify variation across different varieties that have been developed out of the breeding program. Uh, also, other other material that's currently not in the breeding program but has new variation, we want to get that characterized. And ultimately, what we want to do is is have essentially um, markers that are closely associated with uh, factors, genes that are uh, provide um, uh, improvements to traits uh, available, so that we can use the markers for essentially being better able to select uh, new lines in the breeding program uh, quickly and efficiently so you end up uh, overall you save uh, a- effort um, and some materials in the breeding program you also save time in the breeding program so uh, you, you speed up the rate at which you're generating new new varieties um, in the breeding program and so we're working uh, closely with dr. Bill Bilegetu, who's the uh, forage breeder at the University of the Crop Development Centre uh, in this project, so we're actually characterising a lot of his his germplasm, um, and um, uh, yeah, we'll actually be actively sequencing the genome um, or genomes for for, for brown grass. is actually multiple um, types of brown grass uh, which have diff- different characteristics, which are sort of more optimal for particular environmental micro environments around uh the the prairies. Um and so there's these multiple types and we'll be sequencing the genomes uh, of them and um one of the interesting things about uh these genomes is that they are they're large, they're similar to wheat. Most grasses have very large genomes, so about five times uh wheat is about five times the size of the human genome. But, but grown grass is even larger. Um, this is actually multiple copies of the genome, of, of very similar genomes together. So this is actually the added complexity that we have with the, the genomes. As well as being very big, they're really quite complex. But uh, we're at the point now where these sequencing technologies can resolve all that. Um, so uh, we're quite excited to be uh, uh, going down this route of, of identifying uh, or developing these resources and identifying this variation and then applying it in the breeding program. Because ultimately that's where, uh, you know, we can get quite a lot of new scientific knowledge from these activities, but ultimately we want to apply it so it's it's useful to the breeding uh, program. And it actually helps generate better performing varieties in the long run. You
1: mentioned wheat and drew some comparisons there, and I was going to ask you how this work is comparing to some of the recent uh, announcements that have come out of the University of Saskatchewan Mm -hmm. with regards to wheat projects. Are there some similarities there?
2: Yeah, exactly. There are are close similarities. Of course, uh, wheat is um, uh, a huge crop, not just in Saskatchewan and Canada, but across the world um so there's been these international initiatives to uh sequence not just one genome but um lots of different genomes of cultivars that have grown around the world so that was a, a full international effort but we using the same methods uh to, to sequence these these different uh genomes and um what that has yielded is it's actually yielded a the the diversity, uh, the genetic diversity across different germplasm uh, from around the world. Um, so you can see that you know wheat that's grown in in Europe, it's very different from what's grown in Australia, and again it's different from what's grown in in Canada. Indeed, there's differences between what's grown in Canada and what's grown in, in the United States. Um, so with grown grass, it's uh, it. Um, We have similar goals, but of course, it's a a different crop in a different context. It's not a a human food-free crop, it's a a forage crop crop for cattle. So it's predominantly of interest where, you know, uh, uh, large numbers of cattle being uh, produced, and uh, this is an important crop uh, for that industry. Um, So uh, uh, we can use the same tools but all, all the technologies we're using it i guess are potentially agnostic uh, we can use them on any any uh, any species that has dna really whether it's plant or animal or, or, or fungal for example we we can um, sequence anything and uh, with these tools um, uh, it's just the challenge has been with these larger more complex genomes of, of actually getting to the point where we're getting this really good characterization of genomes so that was achieved in in wheat and and we're just using these same principles now for these uh, other crops.
1: Uh, when you mentioned new technology, were you referring to the recently uh, launched um, OPAL?
2: Yes, yeah, so OPAL, um, that's a laboratory. So it's the Omics uh, Precision and Precision Agriculture Laboratory. So, Omics, um, that's a, a term which actually means multiple. Things genomics is the uh, it's the, uh, the large scale analysis of, of genomes. Um, but we also do uh, phenomics, which is actually characterising um, uh, plants at the at essentially at, uh, can be at a whole plant level, it can be at individual tissue level. But we're actually looking for essentially um, different traits. Uh, we call them phenotypes when we're characterizing them on an individual basis. But phenomics is is the application of, essentially, uh, digital imaging uh, technologies um, uh, so that we can uh, characterize plants, let's say, with an image, and, and then we can use machine learning techniques to um, take apart those images and actually give us a digital signature that we can then combine with our genomic information and we're looking for connections between the genomic and that uh, uh, genomic, that image image data. So uh, we're using these these technologies in in the laboratory, and what we're doing is providing uh, not just a platform for doing work in in GIFS, but also for, for labs across the campus at, um uh, other labs in the university, also the federal research labs. National Research Council, Agriculture and Agriculture Canada. And we can actually work with other third parties, so companies or other academics elsewhere, either in, in Canada or indeed uh, globally. Um, what we're actually um, uh, providing is a rather unique resource, uh, all these different technologies uh, together. Um, and with the genomic technology, we're also focusing on... Um, the very the latest technology which we've used for these, these large scale genome sequencing efforts is this long read uh, platform. Um, so, that, uh, it, it, that gives you the ability to actually read very, very long stretches of, of DNA. Um, and you do that, it actually allows, it essentially gives you large jigsaw pieces. Um, and as you know, when you make it when you uh, work with a jigsaw, it's a lot easier to put it together when the pieces are large, best when there's small bits and there's thousands of them. Um, so that's the benefit of using uh, that newer, newest technology is that it actually allows us to piece together the genomes more easily, um, and even if they're very large and also uh, com- um, complex in, in terms of uh, degrees of relatedness. Uh, that exists in the genomes, we can dissect it all. It gives us a greater resolution uh, for resolving that that level of complexity.
1: So you're finding a better brome grass for it. You mentioned wheat and the implications of it uh, as food across the world. What are the implications for brome grass using it in agricultural areas, specifically, that that raise uh, a lot of cattle?
2: Hmm. Yeah, well, ultimately what we, uh, we'll be using the information to expedite the development of, of new varieties, so just new varieties are produced more quickly. Um, now, of course, variety, variety development, it, it takes years to, to actually breed uh, new varieties and you uh, have to multiply the seed before it ultimately it's distributed and grown. Um, and so it is a long-term process. But uh, what these tools actually allow you to take, essentially take years off, uh, essentially a decade or fifteen-year-long process, you can take years off, off, off that uh, of that cycle time. Kind of. um, so, what it means if it's applied on a long-term scale, you end up with uh, a a greater increase in yield um, on an annual basis. Right, so instead of having, say, a one percent yield increase, you might bump it up to two percent yield increase uh, on average a year, Uh, or maybe even higher. Uh, It just depends on um, uh, how efficient you can be using these tools in in the breeding program. But of course, uh, these are incremental differences. Which uh, any one year, it's not a couple of percent might be not not that much. But, But if you have that every year, year on year. Uh, then you end up with a big impact uh, in in yield, uh, and in case of grown grass, it's that, that biomass uh, production, um, which is you know giving that greater sustainability, it's yield sustainability and then the have a se- sustainable food source for, for the cattle.
1: Andrew Sharp is a director of Genomics and Bioinformatics at the Global Institute for Food Security at the University of Saskatchewan. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of February 1, 2021. Saskatchewan's Agriculture Minister said he is still waiting for more details from Ottawa on proposed enhancements to agri-stability. David Merritt is concerned about the cost associated with the changes and has been asking for more details on certain portions of that proposal. Merritt said he requested in a letter another call with all Ag Ministers to follow up the discussion. Federal Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibo's proposal would remove the reference margin limit and increase the compensation from 70 to 80 percent. She had pushed for a provincial decision by the end of January in hopes of making the program retroactive to 2020. New travel restrictions imposed on Canadians by the federal government will not impact the arrival of temporary or seasonal foreign workers. Federal officials say those workers aren't being subjected to the same quarantine orders. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced January 29 that Canada's air carriers had agreed to suspend services to sunny locations. People from Mexico and Caribbean nations make up a substantial amount of Canada's temporary foreign workers. Workers deemed essential by the federal government won't be required to quarantine at an approved hotel. As they wait for test results, they'll be able to wait out their quarantine period on farm. Lonnie McCaig was reappointed a commissioner of the Canadian Grain Commission for a three-year term. McCaig has represented the federal government in international trade missions with key customers of Canadian grain. Prior to joining CGC, he served as a director of the Ogamaw-Saskatchewan Elevator, former president of the Canadian Limousin Association and the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association. McCaig was first appointed commissioner in 2017. A farmer from Lampman, Saskatchewan received a hefty fine after pleading guilty to causing animals to be in distress. Chet McKelkie was fined $7,200 and also ordered to pay a surcharge of $2,800. Animal Protection Services of Saskatchewan seized 131 distressed cattle and found 16 dead animals on the farm north of Lampman in February of 2019. McKelkie is also prohibited from owning or caring for cattle for five years. Canadian Western Agribition launched its first-ever virtual education program. CEO Chris Lane says a year-round online platform features content for all elementary-age students to learn about food production and get the most out of their next in-person visit to Agribition. Lane said the information is available to the general public and is accessible through Agribition's website. The world's biggest pasta maker, Barilla, has completed its purchase of Ebro Foods' Catelli dry pasta business in Canada. The Catelli business is worth $165 million and includes the Catelli, Lancia and Splendor brands and a pasta plant in Montreal, Quebec.